Previously on Storylogical. <laughs> I um uh I, ju- I just finished Francis Harding's um or Hardinger, I'm not sure. Francis Harding's Light the Lightry. And that is set up by the sea and there's a lot of people falling off cliffs. Which which sea is that? The, the English Easter Channel, one? I think. The which one? The English Channel. The English Channel Sea. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The English Channel Sea. Yeah. Mm. yeah. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is The Evening and the Morning and the Night by Octavia Butler. She's covering Every, most of the times all of the day, bases. Except, except for afternoon. Yeah. Which for some reason she's gotten... Uh, but then, you know, in the olden times... Maybe she's just sundowning. Uh <laughs> She's not that old when she wrote this story. Right, so The Evening and the Morning and the Night was first published in Omni Magazine in 1987. We came across it in the anthology edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer called Sisters of the Revolution, a feminist speculative fiction anthology. The Evening and the Morning and the Night is similar to a lot of stories that we've talked about of late where people have a disease um, I don't know why we've suddenly fallen into this genre of disease fiction. I don't know. Medical medical fiction is a thing. Uh, it's true. I feel it's like true. I've read a lot of stories in the last six months about people having cancer in ver- and that cancer being oh, manifested it... in some kind of spectral being. Or One of my old friends said that cancer was our generation's tuberculosis. Uh, it's just what you get in all of the stories. It used to be coughing blood into a napkin and now it's you know hair falling out. That's true. Those brightly colored uh, headbands that everybody's always wearing when they have cancer. So the evening and the morning and the night is about a woman named Lynn that is suffering from a particular sort of disease whose origin we learn throughout the story uh, is actually from a treatment of cancer that these smart scientists came up with, which then, unfortunately, the people who were treated with that drug gave birth to children with a certain kind of genetic variance, let's say. They create in them a slowly developing disease where at some point in their life they often begin to drift and seem disconnected from reality and then their symptoms often manifest that they begin to dig or tear apart their body because they're experiencing a very deep horror where they feel trapped in their body and the only thing they can do is tear themselves out of it. The story follows uh, this woman developing a relationship with someone like her who was the child of two people that had this disease. It's very rare for two people that had this disease to have children. And she goes with her newfound uh, man friend. Uh, her new man friend. They go to a very special retreat that seems to have had unusual success in treating these patients uh, in order to see her man friend's uh, mother. I'm just going to keep referring to him as her man friend. I mean, funny. we could name him as Alan at some point. Yeah, you can. Okay. Uh, what, I, what I loved about the, the story was a couple of things. One, Octavia Butler writes with a force, and you are locked in to the reality of this story and locked into the reality of these people, which, you know, good metaphor considering they eventually also might feel locked inside themselves. So far as I know, I never tried to dig myself out of this, which is good. The other thing that I enjoy, something I enjoy about Octavia Butler's writing and the stories and other things, that she owns her character's emotions in a way that is delightful to me and that characters in her stories often have what might seem like very dark and disturbing or selfish thoughts and there was a moment like in this story where 
the Len says that she hates this other woman. Mm-hmm. No reason. But that's my feeling. Yeah. Uh, and that feels like it, it runs through a lot of Octavia's writings and it runs through this, is that she does not cower from sort of any aspect of humanity. Yeah, the emotions of her characters and the reasons they do what they do are always so clear. Or the emo- rather the impact that those emotions have on on what they're doing. So so Lynn has lived her life in fear of of moving into the next stage of this disease. And Octavia covers the whole kind of first part of her life, her um ending up at university and being very focused, very driven to to study really hard. And and she builds it in such a way that you're like, yeah, yeah, I can totally understand that if you don't know at what point your life might end and you have this incredible ability to focus and concentrate, then you are going to be top of your class. You're going to go and study whatever, uh, at whatever fancy university you want to. And I think that it bears fruit in this story in that it really, we get to really see the conflict in Lynn about when her powers uh, manifest, right? So the fact that she's the child of, of two people with this disease gives her this special power, but not in a kind of a superhero way, more like the ability, uh, a particular pheromone structure that gives her the ability to influence other people with this disease. Yes, I feel like we should say that we don't know that she has that step power until very near the end of the story. So we're not reading the story, watching her use her superpowers. No, no, exactly. Part of what the engine of this story is her coming to understand that she has this particular ability. And when you see her at the end feeling conflicted between, well, I had my life planned out. I had my ideas of what I wanted to do, but it turns out that I've got this particular gift that can help hundreds of other people with this disease, that can help society, that can help push medicine forward. And you really feel for that quandary that she has about how she will live her life and what she will choose to do. Yeah, like in um, responsibility, what we owe to ourselves and to each other is something that's really powerful and and often at the front of a lot of Octavia stories. Kindred, for example, comes to mind. And yeah, that's a, that's a huge part of this story of what we owe ourselves and what we owe other people. This story really goes after a kind of, of hierarchy that is created in societies where disease, well, in all societies where disease exists. Like in, like in Gothic stories, often, often featuring a, a, a woman, uh, the, the horrors that she sees are treated as part of her insanity, of part of something wrong with her. And a lot of disease stories that we have read i think are are here in speculative fiction in fantasy because the act of having a disease of something horrible inside you tends to set you outside of the norm mm-hmm. and your attempts to connect to to the normal world to explain what's going on with you often to people not with the disease gets translated to you're either a a monster or you're crazy uh and there are or possessed. Yeah, yeah, or possessed, yeah. And in, like, world-building sense, uh, Octavia... Uh, so the, the the people that happen to have this disease that's called Dilg uh, have to eat a special kind of food that has been found that a certain kind of food that you eat uh, tends to postpone any onset of symptoms. Uh, and the people in the world of the story refer to that food as dog biscuits. 
as well. There is the psychiatric wards where people get shipped that have this disease that uh, are horrible. And something you said about fear. Um, one of my former writing teachers, Michael Knight, said that there were two things you needed to know to write a character, or at least one of these two. You needed to know, you needed to ask yourself, what does this character want? And or what are they afraid of? Mm-hmm. And this story, like you said, is, is built around her having to confront her fear because it begins with her having been taken by her parents to one of these wards where people with this disease are kept. And what she sees there is, yeah, people tearing themselves to pieces in front of her. And the story moves her from that moment on towards a place where she will have to confront that. And then, yeah, it does, like you said, that cool thing where you take your, char- you take your character to what they fear and they get over that. And then you give them something new to be afraid of. And in this case, a power that she has in herself, an ability to control her own, not only her destiny, Mm. but the destiny of other people. Going back to the power that she has, this ability to influence people with the illness who are otherwise unreachable. Something in this story and in Kindred, which is the only other Octavia Butler story I've read, she has the ability to create these incredibly compelling mysteries without sort of throwing them in your face and that that when they're finally resolved feel incredibly satisfying so you're like oh it was all there in the beginning yes she had this ability we saw it in her ability to to influence her housemates right 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 yeah yeah and it's it's laced in there from early on so that gradually as it's revealed to her and she goes through a little denial and then finally acceptance it becomes incredibly satisfying but there is this midsection in the story where you know something, there's something about her that is different, but you don't know what it is and she doesn't know what it is and the want it creates in you as a reader. I was just desperate to get to the next section to, to find out what it was. Is it so perfectly poised? I feel like a lot of that comes from the fact that while she's writing a mystery, there's so many other genres on top of it that you're really kept satisfied without just the mystery is this extra thing that, that mm-hmm. creates the, the, the page turning, the, the kind of sense of George Saunders says where the story keeps going to a gas station, getting recharged and sent out. Because when she, when she goes to this special ward where they seem to have a special way of treating patients, you're right. Like you're, you're, you're partly thinking, why are all these people so calm? Why aren't they ripping themselves apart? What have they done to them? Is it horrible? Is it amazing? Is it magical? Mm-hmm. Does it somehow involve time travel, which for some reason <laughs> I decided to think it might at some point? Um, you are also experiencing something um, something that I've experienced when I've read uh, other Octavia Butler stories or novels, which is a deep sense of terror. That, like mm-hmm. at any moment, your power or your body your reality might be ripped from you. Because while she's walking into this ward, she, Octavia's already set up in our head the images of people developing symptoms and tearing themselves apart and sometimes tearing other people apart in there. So that moment when, yeah, we're getting closer to the mystery, we're also getting further into the horror and she's walking through corridors yeah. and looking at people the and having trouble. Yeah, just that we feel she's more and more at risk, more in danger of losing control of herself, losing uh, or... Um, at risk in front of these um, by the patients who who may yeah. attack them at any moment, yeah. even to the point where 
uh, Alan's mother, when they finally meet her, she's blind and she reaches out to touch Alan and she brushes her hand across his face and then just gets a little bit too close to... To Alan's eyes. To Alan's eyes, exactly. And and somebody has to grab her hands away, like the lady who works in the session. And you just, yeah. oh my God, oh yeah. my God, she was going to tear his eyes out. It has its own beauty because of that touch that's happening. It also, we've already been set up. That's like the, the scariest thing is to be touched. And a couple of things about, about illness, about mental illness. Uh, at the end of the story, Octavia has a list of references that she researched about different kinds of diseases and mental illnesses and, and stigma. And she talks about how she wanted to write this story in response to stigmatization, demonization of diseases. And I thought... What a difference it makes that the main character in the story is both someone with the disease, but also, it turns out, someone with some power over their lives. And uh, someone had asked me once about cultural appropriation and how, as an artist, you could both draw on other aspects of life or other cultures of life. And I remember telling them, well, I feel like, say, if you were, if you were this you know, super pop star and you're taking all of this other music from other people, why don't you take the musicians who've inspired you on tour? Or why don't you, every time you're in front of the public, say, you should listen to these people? Mm-hmm. And I thought of that when I read all of these references at the end of the story. I was like, I, I thought, awesome. Here are things that influenced you. So I don't feel like you somehow have just birthed this thing out of yeah. your head. And and don't feel like she's putting all of those elements in the disease, of this disease, and they're purely to horrify us I feel like she's putting them in there in quite the opposite way to humanize them right the other thing that happens in this story is that when Lynn and Alan go to this home to to find Alan's mum, there is a lady there who runs the home whose name escapes me right now but she also has this special power that Lynn has and it, it because it's based on pheromones the story posits that they dislike each other on site and part of the story is dedicated to seeing them circle around each other and figure each other out. Powerful women, right? Powerful women who are learning to come to terms with the presence of the other and figure out where they sit in some kind of hierarchy. And I love that because it's so rarely see that in stories, except unless it's based on yeah. um, popularity or looks. But right, with- yeah. You, you both need two competent powerful women Mm -hmm. and you need a writer willing to pit those women against each other and write about it intelligently yeah rather than feel like i can't have these two women fight each other because Mm. women shouldn't fight each other you know let's support each other nothing ever happens where two powerful women would ever be at odds with each other that doesn't happen (laughs) um uh, an aspect of this story that i didn't expect to, to really think about Uh, especially because both of the people in the story that we really follow, Alan and Lynn, both have this disease and both have in their minds this kind of ticking clock that's that's coming for them. And maybe that is part of it, the ticking clock, is that it reminded me of in like a lot of horror stories of uh, post-apocalypses or zombie apocalypse, how much power there is in, as a writer, centering your story on a group of, of people that feel outcast. And not only feel outcast, but feel like something is coming for them. Um, and because Alan and Lynn in the story are, are, are two people, separated from society, that both seem to feel like they have this death coming from them and then have the whole of society against them, it, 
it gives it that feeling that, that it's us against the world as we read it. Mm. But something I really loved is that, you know how you said that the, the power was, was there at the beginning because uh, when Len develops this household and university, people ultimately are, are calmed and do what she says. Something else in this story, this pure sci-fi cool stuff, is that the, the locks on the house in the, in the special ward are all handprint locks or voice locks where, you know, you say it, you know, your voice is your passport and you get to go through the door. Mm. Uh, nobody says your voice is your passport in this story as a reference. Um, What's it a reference to? Sneakers. Oh, my gosh. I used to love that film. Uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think they say my voice is my passport. Please yeah. verify. Um, Back when Robert Redford was still a honey. Yes. Uh, and there's a, there's a bit in the story where when they get to this really heavy door that looks kind of like a wall when that door opens uh beatrice says to len who didn't notice it was there she says that's okay you know a lot of people look at that door and they see a wall and i loved that one she's putting in the technology in the world of the story the idea of a voice and touch opening doors so she's casting forward the idea that our main character's voice will be able to mm. open doors but also the She's hitting, uh, again, this idea uh, of demonization or stigmatization of disease, where you begin to see walls everywhere that both separate somebody with disease from the rest of society or walls where we can or can't do this with treatment um, that get solidified. And I love that the, the, the story and it, the, the very um, physicality of the world is reinforcing this kind of touch and voice of, of giving voice and not being afraid to make contact opens these doors everywhere. Okay, so my pick for this week is Tips by Rebecca Skiff. Schiff? Skiff? I would go with Schiff myself. Okay. Um, in her collection, The Bed Moved, which came out this year, I think. Um, this story is about a young woman who, with her friends Mindal and Charlie, is sort of starring in a girls on camera what are they called camera girls type thing one of them is a boy cam boys and cam girls that's true one of them is a boy and it is in fact his youtube channel charlie comes a lot um which is the name of the thing so the story is uh charlie lives in his trailer he has this porn site where he jacks off for people to watch on the internet the narrator and mindal just join Charlie on camera occasionally and so far you know they've just done a little bit of taking a bit of clothes off but not really done anything overtly sexual and the story is very much about the relationship of the narrator with her buddy Mendel and they've been friends for a long time right since they were kids and they know each other inside out they can express a huge amount with just one look and yet they're in this point in their lives where they're struggling to come to terms with no longer being in education, just the lives stretching out in front of them like an open road with no definition and no meaning and struggling to reconcile their politics and their sexuality and their desires for entertainment all into one kind of coherent sense of being. And... The way Rebecca writes it is so beautiful. It undercuts earnestness and um, 
it just gives you this sense of their their humanity in a really perfect way. One of the things that Rebecca does all through this collection is give her characters perfect little peccadilloes that identify them. So the narrator... Perfect little what? Peccadilloes. A peccadillo. Yeah. As in he picked a piper, pick a peccadillo. <laughs> I don't think peccadilloes was involved with Peter Piper. That's peccadillo is like a, um, like a little habit or a, not quite as much as a kink, desire, something like that. Um, so the narrator's boss is a lawyer and he doesn't care if she absconds for weeks on end as long as... I feel like boss is... Um, loose term? Yeah. He occasionally employs her and yeah. doesn't mind how long she's gone between employments because as long as she sends him the horoscope that they share. Yeah. Um, and so this is one of their shared horoscopes. The risks you take today will reap great rewards. For him, that probably meant trying new Turkish restaurant. For me, it meant showing my nipples to agrophobes who preferred watching tit in real time. I put on my American flag bikini top. We had found bikinis in a thrift store on our drive north from the bay. Of course they had. There is no other appropriate bikini that they would wear in this story. It's it's just wonderful. Then once they were getting a thrift store. Well, the thrift store is a nice touch, but the fact that it was an American flag oh, an American. bikini was was what was the cherry on the top. Mm, an American cherry. Having just watched Fleabag, the BBC Three show we watched with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, which is amazing and everybody's going to watch it uh, now. Okay, finished? Okay. Um, now when I think about this story, I think about it a bit in a Fleabag sense. Not, not in the sense that, that this character and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character are particularly the same, but that this story, like Fleabag, has a hilarity and a causticness to it yeah. um, that could be very abrasive to some people. Uh Whereas me, it's much more like a kind of Velcro or static electricity where I stick to it rather than being repelled. There's something that she does in the story that I'm going to call non-committal sentences. Not that she, Rebecca, as the writer, is not committing to her sentences, but that in the language of her sentences, she's capturing a kind of non-committalness of her character. And possibly, let's just go ahead and say it, of her generation. No, I'm not going to say that. But but of a, uh, of a, um, of a woman or... Of a, of a person of a certain age at a certain point of their life. Yeah, that's that uh, searching example. feeling. I didn't feel like it was searching because they're, they're, they're stuck. They know exactly the, the choices they could make. Uh-huh. Like the, the story begins with them living in their van slash car. Uh-huh. And there's a comfort inn across the street that they could go live in if they want. She knows the, the lawyer job that she can go back to that. But she's bouncing back and forth between the lawyer job and maybe being free or doing something else with their life even though yeah this story wonderfully uh, picks apart notions of freedom and the idea that you can really leave society mm-hmm. without just being another aspect of society um so yeah it, it it didn't feel at all like um like a like a quest or a road novel or, or things that i associate with it with a kind of active outward searching so much as um flipping back and forth between two or three ideas without knowing how to make a choice, without knowing mm-hmm. how to make the right choice. Um, and some of the sentences I mean, um, so you, you get a lot of constructions like this. Um, in describing one of her, oh, in describing, I guess, the lawyer, who is known as L. L was the last of the dictaphone generation, or it was at least trying to prolong the idea of that generation. Uh, there are a lot of sentences that have that, or was at least, in them 
Or like uh, another time where she's talking about Charlie Comes a Lot, where the narrator says, I had a new hunch about Charlie Comes a Lot. It was actually an old hunch. It was a new idea to say something about it. So just like the, you know, the, the, the character in the story is moving forward and going back, uh, her sentences are doing that. They take mm. you in one, in one direction and then immediately go, eh, and turn around and go back in a different direction. Um, and a lot of humor is built into that, that questioning and that layering of constant revision. And it feels to me exactly right for somebody who is at that age or at that stage of life who has suddenly realized that their parents have done it all before and that other generations existed. And so they're talking, you know, they're no longer talking like the 16 year old who knows it all and doesn't really grok that they're just the the latest in wave after wave of humans but that she's talking like somebody who's like oh shit everything i thought i knew everything i thought i real has actually got to be recontextualized how do i make it different from my parents how do i make my rebellion different to theirs how do i make my life have meaning that is somehow separate to theirs a story reminded me of something hemingway said at one point in his illustrious yet short violent life which is he talked about stories as being like icebergs and what you experience uh, not what you experience what you read uh, is the tip of that iceberg and a good writer should be able to convey a weight of truth that is actually driving the story but which is never seen uh some probably refer to this as the the kind of literary malaise where they feel like they're reading a story and they see nothing but an ice cube um but this story does it well. All these things that you're saying, some of them I felt, some of them I didn't. But the story in its depiction of, of these two women and Charlie comes a lot. Uh, but in particular, the narrator trying to decide. Rebecca's really good at giving you that, let's call it the tip. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, the, just the tip. Just, just enough. And shoveling all of this stuff underneath it. That, that's that's pushing forward the story it lights little fires all around my brain <laughs> it's just going from icebergs to fires yeah that's what's amazing about metaphors they can really interact <laughs> it works totally you can like you can sit on an iceberg and light a fire yeah. you might need a little bit of uh insulation the way the sex and the politics interact in this story is fascinating for me it's not enough for her to be thinking about do I love somebody? Do I want somebody? What kind of relationship do I want? It's not enough to be having sex. It's Is it the right kind of sex? Is it politically aware sex? If we do this on camera with Charlie, what does it mean? What does it say about us? What does it say about me and my upbringing in, in my gourmet suburb? Which was ah a beautiful, a beautiful tag. When you were saying before that the the constant revision in the sentences, the constant revision of meaning was so perfect for someone of that age as they're figuring it out. That may be entirely true, but it also felt like what you're saying about her trying to figure out what's the right kind of sex. What's the, what does it mean about my politics? What would my politics say is the right kind of sex? doesn't just feel, I guess, that, I mean, that, yeah, that probably spans all generations. Maybe it's just that we're experiencing it more now, but I feel like there's something in her voice that feels very much like looking at the internet, like we've talked about, Mm -hmm. where you will see constant YouTube videos and discussions of, is this skirt feminist? Or is this movie feminist? Or is this display of sexuality an actual reclaiming of ownership of the body by the woman? Or is she actually pandering? Constant eating away 
at the certainty of, of of who you are and what you're doing that that granted as you know as we know is sometimes just built in to a, a female experience where you're constantly questioning your own identity as people to perhaps a greater extent than someone that is considered uh considered the hegemonic norm mm-hmm. one one last thing i wanted to say is i love how so the reason why it reminded me of the the Hemingway quote about the iceberg is that it felt like such a classic, at least 20th century classic construction of a short story where reading this, a lot of beautiful emotional language is not really through a lot of the story. It's funny, it's caustic, it's specific, but a lot of what the character is feeling is kept just below the surface. And, and then at the end, you get a little pop of it a little peek and it's just in the last couple of lines i'm going to read them if for some reason you care about spoilers um this is probably not the podcast for just you. <laughs> go put your head in um not an oven i wasn't going to say oven a different thing uh, that's right so the last line is i was going to die young not uh, not from falling off a rock not from melanoma but from something grayer that i couldn't yet name and so yes that's emotion but mostly what i wanted to say is the importance of yet that one word makes that last line and the story so much more powerful because it, it, it's not that because it feels like to me it casts the perspective of the story as possibly being in the future like she would name it at some point or at the very least it, it recalibrates your, your sense of, of this narrator and their awareness because they feel like at some point they will be able to name mm-hmm. it and that that is what they're trying to work at that that is what the story is trying yeah, to work. It's like in they're searching there. for adulthood, and what does it mean to be an adult? That's kind of what I meant when I was talking about searching earlier. Like, like she's saying, I can't name it right now, but at some point, life will be presented to me, and what it means to be a grown up in this world will be presented to me, and I will figure it all out. All right, though I feel like she's saying that it will kill her. That it also is also that yes. it is an emptiness, like, and the, the and so that's why it's not. I, I get what you're saying, but to me, the that it does tell you that the story is, in a sense, a kind of search. But is a, it is a search for the name of that that grayness of that feeling where you're lost. So it is almost like just going in circles and and not knowing why you're trapped. I feel like it is a search, kind of like the Octavia Butler story, a search for that touch or that voice that will open mm-hmm. a door and you will know what direction to go, and then you can. It's like it's like you're search she's searching for her search. She <laughs> hasn't figured out what her search is yet. It reminds me of the John Green commencement speech we watched a little while ago at was it Kenyon University? And he talked about being terrified of what adulthood meant and he thought it was about going to neighborhood meetings about how long your grass should be. And and to me that description of adulthood is being killed by a kind of grey, unnameable death. But the thinking of adulthood as being only that it is so limited. Yeah, the power of his speech was about naming that thing, yeah. naming that that seemed grey is, is essential uh, in human connection. Thanks for listening, readers. We definitely did not talk about any other stories besides these two, except for all the stories that we mentioned in reference to these two. If you want to uh, let us know your thoughts on these stories, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological, which is story... Like the word. Oh. 
like that one letter in that one alphabet that we decided to use about, I don't know, 500 years ago, 800 years ago? <laughs> longer, I'm pretty yeah, sure. You think it was longer? Yeah, a thousand yeah, yeah. years ago? Yeah. 2,000 years ago? I don't know. I mean, are we going back to the Sumerians or no, are they, are they no, doing no, other things? I'm pretty then? sure the Bible was written in Aramaic mm-hmm. and Hebrew. And I feel like, did they, did they have the same alphabet? Similar. Oh, yeah, the Greek alphabet was very similar. And then but we got ours from the Romans. Anyway, so, right, you know the letter O. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and what else? Oh, yeah, logical. Logical. Like Chris's yeah. brain. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. That's storyological spelled in the way that we spelled it a few seconds ago. Uh, yeah, if you have enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review and some stars. Uh, we love it and it helps other people find us. Yeah. Uh, and if you have a constitutional amendment in yourself against iTunes, you can always, you can uh, put a message in a bottle, send it out on the ocean and one day someone will find it, open it, and go, oh, man, I was really looking for a new podcast to listen to. <laughs> Bam, thank you, Ocean. And, of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, uh, past episodes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, and a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. I've forgotten how to talk. <laughs> well, so, I find working your way through a veritable multitude of accents can really open up the chakras of speech. <laughs> the chakras of speech. Yes, why don't you give it a try? Um, this story. <laughs> to go up and down with your voice. This story. Odds. <laughs> yeah. That. I play with Miss Marple nightly. Miss Marple. Miss Miss Marple. Where might I find Miss Marple? I hid her away behind the secret panel. You've hidden Miss Marple away. (laughs) Pray tell, why would you have gone and done a ridiculous thing like that? (laughs) 